0: Second Samuel chapter six. Jay was beginning a uh, sermon series on worship this morning, so we'll start with worship. I was second uh, Samuel chapter six. I was um, uh, super excited last night when I looked down at my phone to set my alarm and my phone had already bumped ahead or rather bumped back and reminded me that it, we were coming off a daylight savings time. I was so happy. Because there's nothing like an extra hour of sleep. If you can talk your body into taking an extra hour of sleep, it is the greatest one hour of sleep you can possibly get. However, my uh, children didn't get the memo. And uh, if any of you have a three-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old, I have all of those. Or anything even remotely close to that, I hate coming off a daylight savings time. I like going on to daylight savings time because then you can actually trick them into sleeping for uh, the amount of time they're supposed to sleep but uh so, this morning we woke up at you know like two thirty in the morning or whatever whatever so so uh, for, uh, have you noticed in um we spend a lot of effort at our church, apparently it 's a conspiracy. we spend a lot of effort at our church reminding you when daylight savings time begins. we give you no notice when daylight savings time is we're coming off of because we would prefer you to be here early and and like just stuck here <laughs> so. So for those of y'all that were here this morning at like 4 a.m. and, and then went back home and ate breakfast and came back, welcome back. A couple nights ago, I went into Brayden's room. Brayden will be 3 in January. I went into Braden's room, and he's in a, a big boy bed right now, um, which means a twin bed. Most of y'all would never consider that a big boy bed, but he, he was in a big boy bed. And uh, I laid down beside him, and he always tells me, Daddy, put, put your head on my pillow with me. So I laid my head on his pillow, and we were face-to-face, literally nose-to-nose. We were in an Eskimo stance. And I looked at Brayden, and it was one of those moments that I absolutely just get this rush of uh, this feeling of just love and, and uh, you, you know. You, you, you know. So I'm laying beside him, and I looked at him. I'm staring at him with nose-to-nose. I said, buddy, I absolutely love you. And he said, daddy, I sat simply love you, too. And we're laying. We're laying nose to nose. And I, I guess he felt that same rush come over him. And he felt like he needed to respond. And he went. Just lick my face. From the chin to my forehead. Was so caught off guard. I had no idea what was going on. I said son. Did. Did you just lick Daddy? <laughs> and he went as if you're welcome. <laughs> so my kids are my kids are nuts, literally nuts. I wish I could tell you everything that I could, that they say on a regular basis, but the, most of it is not appropriate here. <laughs> they get all that from their mom. So anyway, Second Samuel chapter six. Let me give you a little background on the story. Second Samuel chapter 6 is uh, <clears throat> what's happened in this story is the nation of Israel over in First Samuel, um, God had told them to go into their, their promised land and begin to take claim over it. And what they would do is they would go out with the Ark of the Covenant, which not only represented the presence of God, it was the presence of God. And so they would go into, the, into battle, they would fight, they would win and they would lay claim to, to new nations as they began to spread out their ban- boundaries over the promised land that God had given them. Apparently, it seems that um, because of the sons of, uh, of uh, one of the guys, <laughs> Eli, because of the sons of Eli began to take advantage of the nation of, of uh, Israel. Um, it's not Eli, it's somebody, but his sons' names are Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas began to take advantage of uh, the nation of Israel. And God decided he was going to punish the nation of Israel. They had begun to treat the Ark of the Covenant as they went into battle um, less like the representation that God was with us and more like it was a good luck charm. Like it was the mascot of the country and they would go in and they would, they would go, they would fight and they would win. So God said, you're not going to treat my presence like it's a good luck charm. And he allowed the Ark of the Covenant to be taken under control by the Philistines. The Philistines were over ecstatic. They were extremely excited about taking over the Ark of the Covenant. And they had basically captured the mascot of of the nation of Israel. It would be like the war eagle going into Tuscaloosa and grabbing the the elephant and coming home. And nobody's interested in that metaphor, I understand. (laughs) I'm with you there. It would be like those of you that are sad this morning going to Auburn... And taking the eagle and beginning to pluck it on your way back to T-Town, a little more response I'm noticing. Okay, I see where my crowd is. I got you. <laughs> Not good. So, uh, so the nation of Philistia, the Philistines, began to parade the Ark of the Covenant around. To their, to their cities, went to their capital, and went to their main cities. And they were going to get their country riled up and saying, look, we've taken, the, we've taken the mascot, we've taken the presence of God away from the nation of Israel. They are not strong anymore. Now is the time that we fight, and now is the time that we overtake them. They went into the very first city, and something crazy happened. As they entered the city, this disease broke out all over the people. They began to pop up boils and whelps and, and, and disease... So the Philistine leader said, uh, let's, let's back back out, let's rethink and let's go to another city. So they back back out, they go into another city and crazy thing happens. It, it happens there as well. Whelps and, 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 and uh, uh, boils and disease. They back back out, they get ready to go into their third city. They're coming in in this giant parade of pomp and circumstance, confetti and big old Macy's Day parade, Bart Simpson balloons and, and trumpets and stuff. And they get ready to go into the third city and again it happens. They realize that apparently this is not going to be a blessing for them. In fact, it is a curse and they decide, the leaders of the nation decide, this is doing us more harm than it is good. We're not being able to get our people excited. Instead, we're not able to rally our people. Instead, what we're doing is we're causing disease and dysfunction in, in our cities. Let's just give it back. They put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart and they take it back to meet King David. And uh, he will take it back to the nation and back to the city of Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up in the first verse of chapter 6. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men. 30,000 in all. He and all his men set up from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God which is called by the name The name of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ayo, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ayo was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all of their might before the Lord. 30,000, remember? With songs and with harps and with lyres and tambourines and sistrums and cymbals and kazoos and stuff. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon. Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there because of the ark of God. This morning... In order for us to begin to, at least I, I think in order for us to set up what worship is, I'd first like to begin and talk about what worship is not, or rather um, some of our problems with worship. I'll call them our wrinkles in worship. You see, what had happened was, is God had told the nation of Israel, and as he was laying out the Levitical law back in Leviticus, that they were to carry the Ark of the Covenant on two poles, and they would they built these... Uh, these uh, these uh, whole brackets that poles would go through and four priests would carry the Ark of the Covenant they would pick it up and they would walk with it. No one was ever to touch the Ark of the Covenant. And the Philistines had put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart and rode it around. And then when the uh, nation of Israel got it back, they also put it on a cart and they were rolling it around just like their enemies had. And as the Ark of the Covenant was rolling, um, getting ready on its way to go back to Jerusalem, apparently an oxen stumbles and it throws off. The ark gets gets crossways and begins to fall. And Uzzah does what any of us would do because we would never want the Ark of the Covenant to open up and spill out its contents. He reaches up to stabilize it. As he stabilizes the ark, Uzzah falls dead because God strikes him dead. I guess one of our key problems that I see with worship is Is that we have forgotten or maybe we've never known how awesome God is. We serve an awesome God. We serve a God who in the palm of his hand holds not only the dreams and hopes of every person in the world, but holds the world itself. We serve a God who didn't just create the world, but continues to create the world. Such a cool verse when you read the uh, Hebrew as it says, let there be the form of the verb there of let there be is let there be and let there be and let there be and let there be and let there be. be. God didn't just say let there be light and it was finished. God continues to say let there be light and will continue to say let there be light for eternity. God not only speaks and creates but He sustains and He holds. And we serve an awesome God. And somehow the nation of Israel had forgotten how awesome their God was. Or maybe they had never known. For us to respond to God in worship We must first know who we are responding to. Now look, I'm not telling you you have to grasp God. One of my, uh, a really cool book um, called The Cloud of Unknowing says that God doesn't have the ability to be grasped by the mind, which means you're never going to wrap your mind around him, but he does have the ability to be grasped by your heart. You can't understand him here. For us to understand him here, we first must know about how he acts, what he does, who he is, what he's about. You must become a fan of God. I don't know if you like football. I wasn't, I'm not super sure about what the status of this group is after my opening comments. But I've noticed in football, I have a, I have a basic philosophy about the types of fans there are. I pretty much categorize people into fanship based on um, how, they, how they get excited. You have type A fans, type B fans, and type C fans. Type A fan, like several of you. Has a T-shirt or a sweatshirt in their closet, and is aware that football season begins at the end of the summer, and is played on Saturdays, but really couldn't care less. The Type A fan is the one that, after the national championship, decides that they're going to be a really big fan and goes and buys the flags on the side of the car and has those obno- I mean those really cool flags that are that are blowing. That's Type A. You can ask them what the record was after the national championship and they literally have no idea even though they never lost. (laughs) Type A fan is the person that if they are going to watch a ball game, they're not watching the whole ball game. They're going to cook and look and see what the score is and cook and come back over here and go outside and like paint the gutters and then come back and check the score. But that's a type A fan. Many of you just so happen to be type A fans. You're like, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. Then you have Type B fans. Type B fans know a little bit more about the ball team. They're able to, uh, they they pretty much know who all the key players are. They can hold a conversation and just so happen to listen to Paul Feinbaum about Paul, Feinbaum about, Paul Feinbaum about Paul Feinbaum about three out of the five days a week. They're B fans. They're going to watch pretty much every game and keep up with the score and pretty much stay glued and they might even tune into Sports Center at the end of the day to see how everybody else did. And then there's the Type C fan. Also known as the psychopath. <laughs> type C fan has season tickets. They travel. With the team. Go to at least two away games every year. The type C fan. Where's Clark again? Oh, that's right. On his way back from Baton Rouge. That's right. I'm noticing he's not the good luck charm. Anyway. Uh, just kidding, what? Did I say that? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, the type C fan not only knows the key players, they know every player on the team. They know from which they hail. This, this guy's from this high school, this guy's from this high school, this guy's from this high school. They know the cumulative average of the offensive lineman's weight. The C fan is completely head over heels in love with their ball team. C fans are nuts. So one day an A fan and a B fan and a C fan get ready to watch a football game together. They sit down and they watch it. The A fan, look, I I apologize up front. I don't know enough about Alabama football to do this with Alabama football, so I'm going to do it with Auburn football. It's the only thing I know a little bit about. Sorry. Apologize. But I know a couple names, so I'm going to go that route. And I watched many of the games. So the A fan sitting down and they're watching the ball game. And they see Cam Newton go up to the center, get under, take the snap, roll back, hit some guy across the middle, run up the sideline and score. And he throws his popcorn into the air and he says, Touchdown! The B fan sees Cam Newton go up to the front, survey the defense, notice that it's not necessarily the defense that he wants, step back, look over to the sideline and get a new play, come back in too, take the snap roll back, fake a handoff to some running back guy, look downfield and hit Darvin Adams cutting across the middle, hit him right across the middle and sees Darvin cut up the sideline for a touchdown. He throws his popcorn into the air and says, touchdown! Then the (laughs) C-Fan. The C-Fan, as Cam Newton is on his way to get underneath the center, notices the nickel package that comes in from the other team from the sideline and realizes that's not the offense that Auburn has set up at the moment. He goes in and surveys the field, sees Cam go under center and begins to scream at the TV, Audible! 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 He he literally believes that Cam hears him as Cam steps back up and looks looks over at Gus Malzahn who's calling plays on the side with about 30 different methods of calling plays and he knows what the plays are and realizes oh yeah that's going to be a good one that's a that's a good catholic play apparently goes in he sees cam get underneath the center call the audible he sees michael dyer go into motion he notices cam newton get underneath and tap lee zimba right on his cheek N- not face cheek notice him <laughs> tap him on his cheek as if to tell him know what your role is he noticed cam says hike Pulls back, Zimba pulls and goes in and blocks the linebacker on the side. Dyer takes the f- Dyer goes for the fake. Cam rolls, sees Mario Fannin, his first check off on the left, fakes the check off over here because Mario Fannin's open. Realizes that they're in a zone defense and Mario Adams is in man to man. I'm sorry, Darvin Adams is in man-to-man, hits Darvin right across the middle. Darvin just is able to do this really cool little deal right here. Sees Lee Zimba, not only block this guy over here, but go up here and hit another key block. Darvin Adams comes into the end zone and just flips over over the top of everybody and scores. And then he throws his popcorn into the air and says, touchdown! <laughs> A fans and B fans and C fans might be looking at the same screen, but they're watching completely different ball games. And A-fans and B-fans and C-fans of God might all call themselves Christians, but they're worshiping completely different gods. How are we to know how awesome God is if we're simple A-fans of God? If God is basically just, I'll, I'll catch up with you on Sunday. I'll see you Wednesday night. If God is just another extracurricular activity in our life, then maybe it's not going to be possible for us to respond to God and worship in a deep and meaningful way. And one of our greatest problems, I think, with worship is we've forgotten or we've never known how awesome God is. If we keep reading, we jump down here to verse 12. What happens is, is David allows, after is after killed, David allows the Ark of the Covenant to go stay with a guy named Obed-Edom for three months. Verse 12, now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark, now finally they're carrying it the right way. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. You have to picture this. So David gets ready after three months and says, all right, gets all the Levitical guys together and says, all right, let's go get the ark. The priests and the Levites go out to get the ark and it comes time for David to pick the guys that are going to carry the ark. Now, don't forget what happened last time. Last time somebody was carrying the ark, he got killed. So this time everybody is. Did you do this when you were in school? I did this all the time when I was in school. If I knew the answer to a question that the teacher was going to ask, I stared, I bored a hole in her with my eyesight. Pick me. If I did not know the answer, I just looked away. I thought that if I don't lock eyes, then maybe she won't see that I'm here. When I was like six or seven or like 15, I believed that if I closed my eyes, I would just went invisible. So you can see these... You can see the priest as David goes, all right, I need some guys to volunteer. Nobody volunteers. He goes, all right, I'm going to pick. And everybody goes, <laughs> David goes, all right, you, 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 you. And, they, and there's these four guys and they go pick up the ark. Now, look, remember what happened last time. Apparently, in these three months, they've begun to realize just how awesome God is. So now you've got these guys who are fully aware of the awesomeness of God go and they begin to get ready to pick up the poles. And they're probably just a little bit nervous. So they go and they pick it up. They're shaking. They're nervous. They're scared. hands are clammy. Their teeth are chattering. Their knees are knocking. And they take a step. (laughs) One. Two, three, four, five. They get to the sixth step. Only six steps. What is that? Maybe six feet. They drop the thing. They're so happy. They decide we're worshiping now. We didn't get killed. worshiping awesome almighty God. Woo! What I've noticed about worship is we've got this idea. I think a problem with worship is we think that worship is this revolving door that we turn off and we turn on and we turn off and we turn on. Listen to me. You don't worship some parts of your day and then not worship other parts of your day. Every second of your life, every breath of every moment of your life is is, is given to worship. You're worshiping something. Worship easily defined is just worship. What are you giving worth to? Every minute of your life you're giving, you're attributing worth to something. The question is Why do we give worth to God periodically? Like it's like he's a revolving door that we can worship for a little while and then we rotate out and then we worship for a little while and then we rotate out. God is a uh, God desires that we honor him. With our lives consistently, Paul said it like this, pray without ceasing. If you want to know what a great definition of prayer is, prayer is being present with God. I'm just here with you, God. So pray without ceasing doesn't mean like always be talking. In fact, as you mature in Christ, you'll realize the the closer you get with Jesus, the less you talk. So it doesn't mean running this. It just means I'm here with you. We're together. I'm here with you in intercession. And then I'm also here with you just to enjoy your presence. Worship isn't a, it's not a song. It's not an event. It's not when you lift your hands or you put them down. That's not worship. Those things are responses to worship, but that's not worship. And what you see here is these guys, I, I, the number six is the number of man. What it looks like they do is they begin to say, we sacrifice our needs, our wants, and our desires, and we give them to you, God. Every six steps, we, we drop everything we're doing and we worship you. It's this, I guess it's this basic metaphor that says, my life is in front of you and in, constantly in tune and worshiping you every minute of every day. You don't get to hide from God. You're constantly present with Him. And then finally, if we look up in verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michelle, daughter of Saul, I just have a problem calling her Michael. Michelle, daughter of Saul, watched from a window And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Skip down to verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household, Michelle, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, You have to hear the tone. I wish that the Bible had the ability to show tone. Almost like, do you guys do Facebook or texting? You know what emoticons are? emoticons are like those little smiley faces or sad faces or winks or whatever. I wish there were a few of those in here every now and then that you just kind of knew what the tone was. Here's the tone of Michelle. When David returned home to bless his household, Michelle, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, Oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Oh, How the king has shown himself today. Oh, how the king has lowered himself from royalty to acting like a mere peasant. What is wrong with you? Have you forgotten who you are? I think that the third problem that I see with worship is this. We listen to the wrong voices. In our our lives, to... To walk this thing out. To do this thing. That we call living for Christ. Jesus makes no qualms about it and says, hey, by the way, this thing is going to be hard. This is going to be tough. Has anybody, you don't have to raise your hand, but has anybody like found it to be easy? Has anybody been like, ah, simplest thing I've ever done. Love it. Not that you can't love it. I'm just saying it's hard. And in living this, in living this following Christ out, living this life of worship. You're going you're to have some tough days. You're going to have some bad moments. And it's in those moments, it's in those days, it's in those opportunities that the enemy is his best. The voice from the enemy will come down and he will make you feel as much guilt, as much shame, as much fear as he can possibly let you feel. He doesn't have many tools, but that's certainly one of them. This morning, you probably, a few of you came in here this morning and you got ready to worship. The band struck a chord and you said, you exhaled and went, okay, y'all have lost me up there, huh? I'll come back up here. (laughs) Hey, y'all. The band struck a chord, you got ready to worship and you went, you just exhaled and said, okay, I'm here. You got ready to lift your hands and honor God and all of a sudden the enemy said, what are you doing? Are you absolutely out of your mind? Did you forget who you were this week? Did you forget what came out of your mouth? Did you forget the action that you... Did you forget only a few minutes ago on the way to church, you and your wife chewed each other out? Like you were just... This was just a minute ago. What do you... Are you really going to lift your hands? Are you... Do you really think God receives that kind of worship? Are you... And then we go like this. Back to ourselves. The enemy says things like, are you out of your mind? Your wife knows you. All those people there might not know you, but your wife knows who you are. You're not going to fake it out. You're not going to fake them. You're not going to pull the wool over their eyes. Come on. I know you. I know who you are. I see your darkness. I see your evil. I hear the thoughts that come inside of your head. I know what you think, partially because I put it there. But I know what you think, and there's no possible way that you should ever consider yourself worthy to worship. Who the heck do you think you are? And the enemy, the accuser of the brethren, accuses. He brings back past sins. There are some of you that struggle with sins this morning that you haven't committed in years and years and years. You've brought them to the altar dozens of times. And the enemy says to you, nope, not finished yet. You haven't paid your dues. You haven't been in prison long enough. You're not on parole yet. And we listen to these voices. We want to live our lives as solely pleasing unto God. And the enemy says, nope. In order to keep us in this perpetual cycle of shame, guilt, and fear, the enemy reminds us as often as he possibly can how bad we are. And we listen to voices. We listen to these personal demons that constantly make us aware of our inadequacies and of the fact that we will never measure up to God. I was, uh, two weeks ago, I was, was in prayer just working through some stuff. You know why you hate solitude so much? You know why you hate being quiet and alone with God so much and why it's so hard for us to do over and over again? Because it's in that moment that you meet your demons. It's in that moment that you meet the brokenness and woundings of your heart. It's in that moment that God brings to surface all of the stuff that He's working on in that moment. That's why you hate it so much. So I'm in that moment and I'm saying, God, I stink. You know how I think. You know who I am. You know the darkness and the evil thoughts that I have the ability to think. You know how I can manipulate. You know who I am. I just, I'm just, just fighting. And I said, but I know you love me, God. And I was reminded of how much I love my kids. It was one of those moments where you just go, God, I love my kids. Just, I just adore my kids. And I had this thought, I guess it, I don't know. I guess it wasn't from God but I said God I guess I understand how much you love me because I sure do love my kids I love those moments where I lay in the bed pillow on the pillow with Brayden and I'm nose to nose with him and I say to him buddy I absolutely love you and he repeats it back to me his best way I love those moments when I go into the girls rooms and Addison is snuck out of her bed and climbed into her sister's bed just to be with her even though I told her not to and I stare at them and just like am happy. Piper said one time, the greatest way that you can glorify God is just by being satisfied in him. And I just stand in front. I go, God, I love those kids. And now I guess I can see how you love me. And he says, uh-uh. I heard him say to me, you're not getting off that easy. You don't love your kids the way that I love you. God, I'm sure that's true. I mean, I understand that. You told me that I don't have the ability to grasp you with my mind. He said, no, you don't get it. You love your kids. But the truth is, if you, if you think about it, the truth is, is you are most pleased with them when they're doing good. And you are displeased with them when they're doing bad. The truth is, is you're the happiest with them and you delight in them the most when they are doing their best. And the truth is, is... You're disappointed in them when they don't. He says, I just want you to know, son, I don't have those emotions. I don't have the ability to be displeased with you and I don't have the ability to be disappointed in you. I am pleased with you. There's no behavior you can do that has the ability to to affect my emotion toward you. You can't do anything that makes me not pleased with you. You can't do anything that makes me not love you. You can't do anything that makes me disappointed in you. I delight in you. You bear my mark. You bear my image and I am pleased in you. Listen, you have lived on judgment and fear and guilt too long. You know why we continue to come back and forth and back and forth and back and forth for forgiveness? It's because the motivating force of us living our lives right is fear. What's going to happen to me if I don't? My life's going to get... My life's going to stink. Things are going to go wrong. Things are going to go haywire. Fear, fear, fear. I'm going to burn. I know this is this is hard for some people to hear, but those that method doesn't work. Judgment has never worked and it will never work. Judgment doesn't work. All you have to do is read the book of Revelation. The right way. What is it that succeeds in the book of Revelation? It's not a lightning bolt that destroys the earth. It's a lamb as if slain. Judgment will never work. Do you remember 9-11? You remember when the towers came down, our nation was in a frenzy And the very next Sunday. We had the highest attendance in the history of our country and churches. Churches were packed across the country. Within one month, we were back down below average. Why? Judgment doesn't work. And that's why the psalmist says, it's your kindness that leads me to repentance. You know what works in your life? When you surrender to the absolute overwhelming love of Christ, nothing else works you're not going to be motivated to stay on task and to live out this life for Christ if you're living under fear of what might happen to you legalism has has done a number in our in our in our lives and one simple sermon isn't going to change things but I'll tell you this you know what worship is worship is the ability to surrender to the pleasure of God god is pleased with you i don't care what you thought 20 seconds ago God is pleased with you and that doesn't have the ability to change. God loves you. God delights in you. I look at my kids and I go, God, I, I how am I ever going to get that? He said, oh, you won't. I wrote this down during worship, during the first service. As I was preparing the sermon, by the way. <laughs> Y'all didn't think that was funny? Okay earth is down the enemy the enemy is forced to operate within the confines of our set parameters and boundaries here what that means is the enemy is forced to use what we have here fear guilt shame that's all he can use he doesn't have the ability to use God attributes those attributes of love and pleasure God is pleased with you and he delights in you, and you'll never get. It will never, it will never click up here. But if you allow him to wrap his arms of love, of acceptance, of forgiveness, of grace, and of mercy around your life, you'll get it here, and it's here. It's the only place it matters. This morning, I'd like for you to. Uh, Mike is going to lead us in a song or two. This first song just says, "It's only your grace." It's only your mercy and it's only your love that has the ability to change me. I'm going to ask, and I will remind you in a minute when we leave, I'm going to ask that you take something home with you and munch on it for a little while. Just, just chew on it. It's this idea that the only thing that's ever going to lead to life transformation in, in your life and in my life is when we respond to the love and the pleasure of Christ. That's it. Nothing else works. Everything else is this perpetual cycle of guilt and shame and and sin. But if we respond to love and forgiveness and grace and mercy like we change. Take this home with you today and and chew on it. Too often we get into our quiet times and we do all this talking. ba 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 And God's saying to us today, no talking, just let me love you for a little while. Will you do this this morning? Will your response to the sermon this morning just be to sing? So forget what you thought, what you did, who you are, who you think you are. Forget all that crud and just respond to a God who is pleased with you and there's nothing you can do to change it. Will you do that with me? Will you stand this morning?